almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked into this religious place of worship, much like something like this, I suppose. Uh, and you might think, um, based on what Scripture Liz read a minute ago, that everyone rejoiced and gave thanks to God because of a healing. I mean, right now, when people get healed miraculously in the middle of places of worship, we put it on TV, we send it out. White dudes seem to make a lot of money and get airplanes. I don't know what's going on with that. I don't know. But, like, but you might think, I don't know what your experience is, that that's something that would be celebrated. But that's not what happened. It was a hostile environment. This healing was responded to with animosity, with hostility, with confusion. Jesus healed, but he didn't play by the rules, and he disrupted the institutions of power. Hope Cody, one of our student leaders, she was up here um, saying hi at the beginning of the night. Um, when, when we were reading this passage together, she called him civil disobedient Jesus <laughs> uh, from this passage. Um, but because we're so far removed from that moment, and because so few of you in this room, maybe none of you in this room care at all about Sabbath. It, it may, maybe some of you do. I got into a, a six-hour debate at Need Loves a few years ago with a guy about the Sabbath. It was fantastic. Um, I had to confess some sin later uh, for some anger. But um, but I, I'm, I haven't met anybody in the house that's like really passionate about what we should do or not do on the Sabbath. Um, we'll, we'll get into more of that. But, but because we're so far removed from a context where that de- was happening, it's hard for us to imagine how culturally charged it must have been when Jesus did something good on a Sabbath day in a synagogue. Why was doing good, why was bringing life to this man so disruptive? In order to better enter into the world of this encounter, I'm going to do something with, with Jesus. I'm going to do something that may be really dangerous. I don't know. I want to take something from our day and age that is super culturally charged. And I want us to sit in a place of worship together in the midst of an environment that's culturally charged. To try to imagine what this might have been like as Jesus made the decisions that he made. So about a week ago, some of you may know this, Michelle Williams uh, won a Golden Globe for the Best Actress. And here is some of what she said in her acceptance speech. Would you throw that up, Tuck? I've tried my very best to live a life of my own making, one that I had carved with my own hand. And I wouldn't have been able to do this without employing a woman's right to choose, to choose when to have my children and with whom, when I felt supported and able to balance our lives as all mothers know that the scales must and will tip toward our children. Now I know my choices might look different than yours, but thank God or whoever you pray to that we live in a country founded on the principles that I am free to live by my faith and you are free to live by yours. So women, 18 to 118, when it is time to vote, please do so in your self-interest. It's what men have been doing for years, which is why the world looks so much like them. But don't forget that we are the largest voting body in this country. Let's make it look more like us. Some of you might think after reading that or hearing that, that Michelle Williams is pro-women. The next day on Facebook, I'm old, I'm still on Facebook. Um, the next day I saw a bunch of, of news articles and headlines, but the, the first one I saw uh, is the one I read most thoroughly, and then uh, I read a bunch of like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth articles, but here was the headline of it. You got that picture? Three reasons Michelle Williams' Golden Globes abortion speech hurts women. This author states in that article that Williams' insistence that she wouldn't be successful without abortion is not only offensive, but props up the patriarchy and punishes a woman for her fertility and insinuates that it's impossible to be both a mother and successful. 6.40 in the morning, I'm reading this in bed and uh, my blood pressure is rising. Trying to figure out what's going on. It's interesting, right? Michelle Williams didn't even specifically say she had an abortion. It seems like it was implied 
But she was talking about women, not abortions, right? And if she's being pro-women, why are other women saying that her speech hurts women? And, and I don't have a leg to stand on in this culture. I am uh, a Protestant white male, um, and, uh, but they're the only legs I have. Um, a Google search for this speech is loaded. If you type in Michelle Williams' Golden Globe speech, a Google search is loaded with battle lines being drawn everywhere. And then when I bring up a women's rights and abortion in this, this ethical minefield with so much at stake, when I bring this up in the middle of a worship service, I mean, do you hear how quiet it is when I stop talking? Are you a little nervous? Are you wondering if maybe you should leave? I mean, y'all are watching me right now, and I think most of you are wondering what I'm going to say next. Is he pro-life or pro-choice? Are those even fair categories to pit against each other? Is he pro-Michelle? Is he pro-women? Pro-babies? Pro-Jesus? Is Jesus pro-women? Is it warm in here? Samantha? (laughs) My next sentence might determine whether or not you're ever coming back. Who or what am I going to choose? This is some of what it was like in the room when Jesus was about to heal a man, friends. Except instead of the crowd deciding whether or not they were coming back, they were deciding whether or not to kill him. To the relief of many of you, and I'm sure to the frustration of some, I'm actually not interested in telling you where I draw lines in this discussion about abortion. I'm very passionate about my own convictions in this, and if you want to know them, I will gladly share them with you. I have no reason to to not be excited about what to share with you. I would just rather do it one-on-one. So come ask me after. I'll be hanging out back awkwardly waiting for talk to somebody. Um, uh, But for tonight, specifically as it pertains to the text, what I'm interested in is just, again, how charged that room was, how powerful it was for Jesus to challenge the questions being asked, and for him to suggest a different grid through which to see what was going on. Our scripture tonight begins with Jesus going into a synagogue. If you have a Bible, digitally or otherwise, I encourage you to go there. I really want you guys to be familiar with scripture um, and just to start getting there. I've told this story a, a, a bit ago. I had a, um, I, w- I was doing this leadership course with uh, our, our interns and some Young Life staff members for a couple years, and, um, and one of these guys in this group uh, at one point said, man, I just wish I could know the scripture or be as familiar with the scripture as you are. And I said, oh, pull out your phone right now. I've told this story here, I think, somewhat recently. I said, pull out your phone right now. Put a reminder in your phone uh, for 10 years from now. And call me in 10 years. And read the scripture a lot over the next 10 years. And in 10 years, I want to talk to you about whether or not you feel then like you think I might feel now. Now I was older than 10 years. I was like, but brother, this takes time, man. They're in like a book you can read. You just got to stay with it, you know? I want you all to become familiar with the scriptures. It's going to take time. If you're not familiar at all with the scriptures, we'll open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, and we'll get going. It begins tonight with Jesus going into a synagogue, which is a Jewish house of worship. If you know your history, these started because of the destruction of the temple in 586 BC, and they started spreading around the world. They really started spreading about 70 years later, but they they were sort of all over the Middle East, all over the Mediterranean at this time, and um, when Jesus would go into towns, he would go into synagogues. When Paul, who's an apostle of Jesus, when he would go on missionary journeys all over, the first place he would go is the synagogues. These houses 
of worship for the Jews. And as a faithful Jewish man, this is something Jesus did all the time. Throughout the accounts of his life, we find him teaching and discussing matters of the scriptures with other people of God in the synagogues. All the time. And on this occasion, right in the middle of the synagogue was a man with a deformed hand. It's not really any more specific than that. It's a pretty general term for a disability or a deformation. And so simply just think of a man with an obvious and noticeable physical deformity with his hand. And then if you grab that slide with the first um, passage of Scripture up here, since, uh, since it was Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. This isn't the first time Jesus had disrupted the status quo on the Sabbath. In the religious leaders' minds, he had been a civil disobedient Jesus. He hadn't abided by their rules, and since they thought that their rules were God's rules, who among us is innocent of that? Jesus made them very uncomfortable. And so they wanted to see what he would do, because they had made up a law based on old Sabbath teachings in the Old Testament that any kind of healing was work. You shouldn't work on the Sabbath. So any kind of healing in their minds was forbidden because healing was a kind of work to them. They're, they're, they're so specific were these laws that, for example, they, there's actually these written down laws of, of sort of teasing out the implications of Sabbath that if you had a goat and it was stuck in a thing that it couldn't get out of, you couldn't help your goat get out because that was work. But you could, like, leave your goat a trail of food and help your goat help itself to get out. Because that's just helping people, that's not work. That's how teased out all of these things were. And they had decided, these religious leaders, that any kind of healing was work, and so they wanted to see if Jesus would heal this guy. What would he do? And his enemies were hanging in suspense. This was a culturally charged moment, wondering what he would say next. But again, instead of just, if we don't like him, we're going to find a different church. You know, instead of that, if they don't like what he does, we're going to kill him. And Jesus knows this is going on. This is, that's how charged this moment is. And into the midst of that tension, would you go to the next verse? Into the midst of that tension, Jesus said to the man with a deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. Friends, cast your imagine into, imagination into this moment just for a second. This is so intense. Jesus is a baller. While everyone is watching him, hanging in suspense, waiting to accuse him with his life in the balance, he goes all in. He takes it up a notch. While everyone is staring at him to see what he would do, he looks at the man and he says, come and stand in front of everyone. As if to say, are you all watching closely? It's one of the most remarkable and touching dynamics of Jesus' incarnation to me that he never once defends himself, ever. He seems to only take things head on or to have nothing to do with them. He's altogether powerful and vulnerable. He says to this man, come and stand in front of everyone. The most important thing here is, of course, the man. How quickly we lose sight of a person in the face of politics and shoulds and should nots. In conversations about the poor, we forget a particular person in need. We care about global poverty, but we walk past the poor on our way around town. In conversations about a woman, uh, conversations about women and babies, we forget about a particular woman or a particular baby. 
So too in charged moments about right and wrong, like healing laws on the Sabbath, we are more concerned with right and wrong than we are with a person in need. But not so with Jesus. For him, as we'll see, he has fixed his mind so intently on this man that he ties his own life to him. And so there he is, in the middle with Jesus, with every eye on him, and surely, like anyone in his condition, he would prefer less attention. But Jesus has called him into the very middle of attention. So two quick observations before we go through the text even more. First, it seems eerily common for Jesus to take what we want to hide and to bring it into the light. Not for our shame, which is always what we're afraid of, but for our healing, for His glory, and for the good of others. What is it that you would be mortified to have brought into the light? Is there a chance God is nudging you to take that step out into the light for healing? Second, so many of us think faith is something that we do with our feelings and words, but like many times in the Gospel of Mark, faith can be wordless. But it is always manifested in action, always. This man did not say a word, but he stepped forward, and that's faith. We'll keep going in the text. Next slide. Then he turned, Jesus turned to his critics. This man in the middle, come stand in the middle. Then he turned to his critics. Well, the man's standing right here. And he asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Which one is it? Is the Sabbath for doing good or for doing evil? Is it a day to save life or destroy it? They have their binary category, right or wrong, lawful or unlawful. Jesus responds with his own binaries, good or evil, life or death. Which one is it? It's a rhetorical question, of course. You know, like I know, like they know how they ought to have answered. No Jewish person would ever think ever think that God establishes a law for doing evil or that God establishes a law for destroying life. On the contrary, all of God's laws, all of them are established for the flourishing of life. The Sabbath is literally commanded for humans to rest and remember God and be refreshed and loosen their grip on the stuff that's killing them. So come on, religious leaders, which one is it? Is this a day for evil or for good, for life or for death? And they are silent. They knew the right answer. They knew that if they agreed to Jesus' categories, that their hearts would be revealed. And unlike the man who in his external form of shame came and stood in the middle, them with their internal shame were hiding in their silence. Let's keep going. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Or some of you, you need to take a look, long look at this. Jesus was angry. He was angry, friends. This isn't the only time either. Uh, if you haven't signed up yet, I encourage you to come on the winter retreat. Some of what we're going to be talking about is what it means to follow Jesus and glorify God with some of those intense emotions we feel like anger. Jesus was angry. He saw injustice and he was rightly angry because anger is the God-given emotional response to injustice. And this was unjust. 
The religious leaders would rather have this man spend a few more hours with his deformed hand than be healed on the Sabbath. One Christian scholar says it this way. I think I got a slide for this. It is thus not simply permissible to heal on the Sabbath, but right to heal on the Sabbath, whether or not it is lawful. It is right, even if it's not lawful. For some of you, that may mess with your grid in the cultural moment of today. I, have you ever taken a history class? Have you looked long and hard at various laws in, in our country and around the world and throughout history? Maybe getting out of your own cultural moment makes it easier to see injustices. I think it's sometimes really hard for us to see the injustices that we're complicit in. But if you look back at history, are there not times when, when you can see absolutely that it was, something was against the law, but it was right to break it? A litmus test of true religion is its response to injustice. Jesus was angry because of the injustice done to this man. Another scholar suggests that Jesus, and th this is so good, he, he suggests that Jesus could have simply said something like this to the man, like, hey, my heart, Brother, it really goes out to you with your hand like that. But I love God more than you. I love you. I just love God more. I keep the order right. And I want to obey his clear commandment. Let me invite you to my place immediately after sundown when the Sabbath is over, and then I will help you. That would have, that, right? That would have been great, right? Like, like an answer like that would have made Jesus more acceptable to the leadership of God. And just a few hours later, he'd have been able to heal this guy's hand in his home. But apparently, Jesus does not like when people use the Scripture as even a few-hour cover for insensitivity to human need. Jesus is angry. He, but he's not just angry. He's also deeply saddened, grieved at their unwillingness to understand and accept what's happening before them. He wants them in. He might be their enemy, but they're not his. They're interested in right and wrong, in and out. He's interested in life and death. One of the most helpful challenges anyone's ever given me in my entire life is to ask better questions. To ask better questions. Not just, um, this is a big one for me, not just asking yes or no questions. Anybody, anybody here grow up in like a school that did Socratic seminars? Anybody raise your hand? Yo, big deal. I love it when you all do that. You're great communicators. You're wonderful conversation partners. Because you never ask closed questions. Y'all, anybody, you guys know what closed questions are? Yes, no questions? I do this all the time, and I always want to punch them. My kids come home from school, I go, hey, buddy, did you have fun at school today? No matter what he says, I've got to come up with another one. Because it's only a one-word answer, right? And I'm like, who'd you hang out with at recess? It's a one-word answer. You know, my daughter, Audrey, she says, Isaac. And I'm like, no, you're not. Uh, <laughs> I, know, I know Isaac's dad. Uh, Isaac gave her a bag of money the other day, and I'm freaking out. True story. She's six. Uh, uh. I sat in the car with his dad for a while. His, her, her, his dad's a pastor in town. We're good friends for now. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, but, but asking these closed questions, right? So, I mean, I'm trying to grow at asking open-ended questions, better questions. Buddy, what was your favorite part of school today? What would you, like you have fun doing at recess, and why was it fun? That's it's compound. It's too complicated. I'm terrible at it, but I'm trying to figure out how to ask open-ended questions. But it's not just questions for conversation like that. This person who introduced this to me, it was my college pastor, introduced, I need to ask better questions about how I'm making decisions about my life. Learn to ask better questions about why you're doing the things that you're doing. 
One of the best questions we could ask in any circumstance is this one. What brings life? I honestly, I, the biggest struggle I have with this sermon is I, it's, I'm struggling to make this not fall flat because I remember hearing it and going like, dude's intense. That's a big question to ask when I'm looking for cereal in the morning. Uh, you know, like that's a really big question to ask. I I'm hoping to make a case for that tonight. So let's leave this question up here for a minute. What brings life? Let me show you what I mean. Soon after following Jesus, I remember asking, as it related to sexual intimacy with my girlfriend, how far is too far? Or how far can we go and still feel okay about it? Or if you're um, religious, how far can I go before God's mad at me? Some of those you might not actually word. Some of them you do. It's one of the most common questions I hear with regards to intimacy in couples for the past 20 years. And it's a train wreck of a question. It is a horrible question. Seriously, imagine one day I'm hanging out with one of my daughter's boyfriends. Let's call him Isaac. Uh, and he says, he says, Mr. Leonard, because that's what he's going to call me. He says, Mr. Leonard, um, he doesn't get to call me Father Leonard, even though I'm a priest. Uh, nope, nope, nope. Uh, Mr. Leonard, because uh, he'll say that, right? Uh, he's going to say this. Imagine this. Hey, how much, how much can I do with your daughter before you get upset? That's the moment that I, like the Pharisees, begin to plot his destruction. Uh, you see? Okay? And yet, and yet, do you recognize that question? But then, but of course, if you take it out of like some weird imaginary la-la land, like you by yourself in your room, just like pondering ideas, and you begin to present it in a real relationship with somebody that you care about, what can I do before the damage is too great? Isn't that what we're asking? It's a horrible question, friends. If you don't blow up those categories and ask better questions, you are only left with shoddy answers. Here's a better one. And I know it sounds strange. What if you started asking, how can I bring honor and life to this other person with my body? I don't mean a baby when I say life. <laughs> um, I mean that God desires that you guys, you gotta be quick, you gotta be quick. Think about it, critical thinkers, this is good. Uh, God desires that we have abundant life. And everything we do contributes to the flourishing of that life or the destruction of that life. Everything we do is moving in one direction or the other. There's nothing that doesn't move in one of those directions. Nothing, not even a bowl of cereal that I choose to eat. Everything that I do is contributing to, to, the, to the flourishing of my and, uh, mine and others' lives or the destruction of mine and others' lives. Everything. In your physical relationships with others, are you moving others and yourself toward abundant life or towards death and destruction? And if you think that sounds intense, good. Because I think you and others are worth infinitely more than we've ever imagined and you and I are worth someone who treats us with the kind of care that is focused on abundant life. One of our favorite questions to ask, especially in religious communities, is, is this right or wrong? Do you think it's wrong for me to do that? Is it right for me to do that? To say this, to think that, to post this? And that framework, right, wrong, lawful framework, that grid you understand what I mean by grid? Like how you pass, you pass things through this grid of like, is it right or wrong? Red light, green light sort of thing. That's a trap, friends. 
It's precisely the grid that Jesus is overthrowing with the Pharisees who are interested in law. They're interested in right and wrong, and he doesn't have it. He doesn't say, he doesn't agree to their categories when they want to introduce right and wrong. He doesn't have it. He asks them a question back. He, he looks at them and he says, good or evil, life or death. They are worried about right and wrong and he's concerned about life or death. Drinking habits are often justified by saying, I have a right to do this or it's not that bad. My church doesn't serve alcohol for communion, though we have the right to. Because of how many people's lives and families have been wrecked by alcoholism and how many individuals are fighting for their lives to stay sober. And so whether or not we serve alcohol, quite frankly, has nothing to do with right or wrong. It has to do with love. It has to do with life and death. You have a right to post almost anything you want to social media. But is what you are sharing promoting abundant life in this world? Because if it's not, it's promoting death. Or is it just not harming anyone very much? What you eat, how you spend your money, what you do with your free time, how you study in school. Friends, there isn't a, a square inch in all of God's creation where this doesn't apply. Ask better questions. Forget right and wrong. It's a trap. Forget it. Is it right for me to do this? Is it wrong for me to miss church? Is it right for me to read my Bible in the morning? Is it wrong for me to say, it's all a trap? What brings life? Is this bringing life or is this bringing death? In the end, there is only and ever those two options and friends, start filtering your decisions through a grid like that. It's the very grid that Jesus offers in response to the religious leaders. They ask about the law they're asking about right and wrong. Jesus asks about life or death. I, I hope that it just becomes like a Pavlovian response for you. Uh, you're in college. Uh, it, should, it should just trigger this, that every single time somebody asks you or you think, I wonder if it's okay to do this. I wonder if this is wrong of me to do this. I hope that like, you develop like, a, a, a gut reaction where you, don't, you are unwilling to answer according to that standard. That when you say, is it okay to do this, you stop and you go, is this going to bring life to people and to me or not? Is this going to contribute to people's flourishing in the world or not? If it's not, I'm not going to post it. If it's, I'm not just going to tell you something because it's honest. That's a terrible decision. And don't tell me that the only other option I have is to lie. I reject your categories, friends. I reject your binary options and I give you another one. I will tell you something because it's loving or I'll keep my mouth shut because it's loving. Now, I don't always do that. That is the grid that I'm called to. Okay, I got to move on. Let's go. Um, let's, do, let's, let's next text. That's all an aside. That's just for you to take home. Okay, let's keep moving through the text. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. This to me totally reads like a no-look shot, okay? Like, like Jesus is staring them all in the face, and he drains a three. Do you know what I mean? And that's a kind of what, the, that's the setup here. He's looking at all of them with anger and he's grieved for their hearts. And as he's looking at them, he says, hold out your hand. And then it's healed. There's no words exchanged. We don't have a record of him touching his hand. The man doesn't say anything. 
He, he, he's already in the center, and he brings the very source of his shame even more into the center, while Jesus probably staring everybody else in the face, and then it's healed. Again, Jesus is a baller. It's, he, this is an offer, and then there's obedience, and then there's healing. Last week, if you were with us, uh, uh, we were looking at John chapter 4, um, and, and it was um, Jesus said to this woman, and, and I was suggesting he says this to you as well, if you knew what God was offering and you knew who was offering it, Jesus, you would ask. If you knew what he was offering you, you would ask. This week, Jesus doesn't even invite the man to ask. He just says, hold out your hand, and it's done. And then everyone rejoiced. They had a big party. Man's hands healed. Let's play basketball. You know, I don't know. Uh, um, nope, because if you keep reading, the religious leaders met together to devise a plan to kill Jesus. I want you to see this more than any practical takeaway, more than changing the grid of the questions you ask. Y'all, that is life-changing. It's been life-changing for me. Ask about life and death. Stop asking about right and wrong. That's great. More than anything else, I want you to see this. Jesus links himself to this man. He ties his life to this man's healing. Knowing what was at stake, he says yes to this man. He's not interested in right or wrong. He's interested in life. Specifically, he's interested in this man's life and even the Pharisees' lives. He wants their hearts to be softened for them to understand, for them to take hold of the life that he has to offer. It's interesting, the Greek word that's used in the text in Mark that says that their heart, they were stubborn, their hearts were stubborn, it literally means that they are unwilling to understand. Multiple times in the Gospels, that same word or phrase is used to communicate the same thing. The disciples of Jesus also get accused of this. And it's this thing that always grieves Jesus' heart as if he is always on the loose. His spirit is always out doing things, always having things to offer you and teach you, and he wants you to listen, to receive, to be open. But the dang stubbornness of our hearts, unwilling to understand. I am unwilling to stand under that because I got my own categories and my own grid, and I don't want you disrupting that because I don't know what kind of control I'll have left on the world I've crafted. And Jesus grieves at that because he has living water, because he wants to heal Because in the midst of a place of worship, a dude is healed and you don't care. How cold are you? I'm off my notes. I don't know where I am. He wants the Pharisees in too. He's interested in your lives too. He ties himself to you as well. Not just to that man giving all that is his for all that you are. Some of you, I'm sure, need to be challenged to loosen your grip on right and wrong in all the ways that that suffocates life. You're hyper-interested in right, wrong, in yourself and others. And it's crushing. You can't celebrate life. Jesus invites you to think bigger, friends, to think about good and evil and life and death and to understand that right and wrong is a trap. It it can convict you, it can teach you about your needs, it can do all sorts of things that might be helpful if you're willing to let it go. Think bigger. Some of you, like that man, might be invited to step out in vulnerability and let Jesus have his way with you. He wants life for you, friend. He honors and cherishes your vulnerability and he will not magnify your shame. He will not magnify your shame. He will cast it out and bind you to himself in glory. But whatever he's asking, whatever he's offering, 
I want you to see what he did with that man in that place, his rejection of the categories, his unwillingness to defend himself, his offering of better categories, his movement toward an individual in the face of the establishment, but ultimately his willingness to tie himself to that man even at the cost of his life. My prayer is that you would see that and you would see the ways in which he's doing that for you and that you would say yes to him tonight and all the days of your life. I'm going to pray for you um, and for me. Um, And then we're going to take a minute. We do this every Tuesday. We're going to take a minute um, in our noisy, busy, distracted world um, to be silent. Uh, And it'll just be about 60 seconds. Um, I I encourage you to pray and ask the Lord what he is offering you and to say yes to that. Um, If you feel uncomfortable praying and you want somebody to pray for you, maybe you feel comfortable, you just want somebody else to pray for you, which is super powerful. We're two or more gathered in his name. God is with us in a pretty special way. There's folks on the prayer team out to the left out here who love to pray with you. Um, you can also just um, reflect on what's going on inside of you. Uh, but, but anyway, we're gonna be, just be quiet for a minute and then we'll come to the Lord's table together. Let me pray. Father, um, thank you for your son. Lord, we in our, I, I'm, I guess I'm mindful right now, Lord, in our, in our digital age where we've got a fire hose of data coming at us all the time and we're, all of us have some sort of beat on um, injustices in the world. Um, I feel so convicted um, by how little we care about individuals and how much we care about ideas. And your son is never like that. Jesus doesn't miss anybody. Right now, Lord, I just wish I knew that man's name. I guess I will someday, but um, thank you for your son. Would you send your spirit tonight to help us know um, the ways in which you want to challenge our grid and the ways in which we ask questions and make decisions and invite us into something bigger uh, and the ways in which you are calling us out of places of shame into places of healing And help us, Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to believe that you tie yourself to us and you bind your life to us. Um, That you don't defend yourself. You make yourself vulnerable even when it's your life at stake on our behalf. Send your spirit now um, to help us even know what's going on inside of us and help us to know how to pray. 